0: Airbooks Books presents *End in Samsara*, written by J.W. Voice and read by Daisy Ray. Part two: After a cycle is broken, one. On an aesthetic level, hospitals varied so much from place to place, and Sam had visited some truly appalling ones in her time really on her own account. From state-run institutions in developing countries, however, to the finest private facilities available, she was of the mind that each building seemed to yield the same universal energy. This indefinite, ineffable quality was generally not propagated by the staff, although at times they too exuded an echoing form of disquiet. No, the energy she couldn't help but consume, being a highly sensitive empath, seemed to arise exclusively from the patients and visitors, a veritable cocktail of hope and despair, relief and loss, the joy brought by the welcoming of new life and the sadness of final goodbyes. To her there existed no greater concentration of disparate emotions and no better encapsulation of the human experience in a single setting. Sam had lived a life that made her completely unsurprised by serendipity and underwhelmed by chance encounters. She moved through life like water, never settling for long in one place, adjusting her trajectory like a river whose landscape was forever altering around her. "'He's awake now,' Victoria said in the hallway. "'I can't thank you enough for coming.' "'It's nothing. I didn't think I'd be seeing you again so soon.' I wish it was in better circumstances. The doting wife's eyes were red, her hair messy. She looked desperately in need of a good night's sleep. Your husband means a lot to me. I'm glad I could make it. Well, he's extremely lucky to have had a friend like you. It's funny he hasn't asked for anyone else. Then I feel like the lucky one. May I go in? Victoria nodded. Yes. I'll give you two a moment, but I might pop my head back in shortly if that's okay. Of course. Oleg's eyes lit up as she entered the room. He was propped up on the bed and wore a faint smile as she approached. Sam, he said softly, a whisper, I'm so happy you could make it. You're quite demanding these days, aren't you? she said. Come to Barbados, Sam. Come to Florida. Are there any other places you'd need me to fly to at a drop of a hat? Olek let out a chuckle, which became a cough. No, dear, I think this is the last one. She sat down on the seat beside him. How are you feeling? It sounded like a silly question, although one she felt needed to be asked. Like I'm dying, but otherwise at ease. So I hear you finally achieved your childish dream. Olek managed to grin. I did, it was marvellous. You know, they do call Florida God's waiting room, but I doubt many people use the rides while they wait. I had to go out differently, didn't I? I suppose so. And did the roller coasters live up to your expectations? His impish smile returned. Oh, yes, he wheezed. The reply caused another small bout of coughing. Then his expression altered while he seemed to take a moment to think. Sam, he whispered. I don't want Jack and Victoria to know. To know what? To know that I'm scared. He reached for her hand and gave it a feeble squeeze. They think I've accepted it all so gracefully, but truth be told, I'm terrified. It's okay to fear the unknown. I just don't know if I'm ready, he wheezed, to leave. Then don't think of it as leaving, she said. Think of it as coming home. Olek nodded, a tear trickled down his cheek. He released her hand and managed to wipe it away just as the door was opening. ''Sorry, you two. I hope I'm not disturbing.'' Olek gave a sideward smile. ''It's fine. I knew you couldn't stay away for long.'' ''Bit awkward,'' Sam said, ''but there's actually someone else here I need to visit.'' ''Ha, even here,'' Olek coughed. ''I should have realised I'm not so special.'' He smiled and raised an eyebrow. What a small world it is. Indeed, she said. She leaned in and kissed his cheek before saying goodbye, accepting that it was their final one. The next patient in Memorial Hospital was given no warning of her arrival. This was clear from his reaction when she entered the room. Hams, he said, his head lifting from the pillow. Zack had never relinquished the nickname he'd given her on the day they met. A moment still vivid in her memory. He was busking somewhere in downtown LA, and the tip she dropped in his guitar case stopped him in the middle of a song. He'd asked for a name. Ah, Mama's a Samantha too, he'd commented. She told him that in her case, Sam was short for Samsara. That's prettier, he'd said, asking if it meant anything. She then explained casually that in Buddhism, samsara denotes the cyclic nature of birth, death and rebirth, a perpetual wheel of suffering that all humans are confined to during their existence. Oh, lovely, he replied with sarcasm. Why do I get the image of one of those hamster wheels, you know, with the poor little mite continually running but getting nowhere? She laughed at this and from that point on, hamster or hams was how he always referred to her. Christ, I wasn't expecting you. How did... Your friend Tom called me. This bedside encounter hit her with far more force than the last. He just looked so uncharacteristically vulnerable. This former pillar of self-assurance like a swaggering peacock shed of his feathers. While she'd always known his bravado and hubris were part of an image he'd invented for himself, it was still startling to see the relatively young man in such a hopeless condition. On one level, it always seemed unlikely that Zack would reach a ripe old age. He lived too fast, took too many risks. In many ways, it was a miracle he'd made it this far. Over the years, she'd watched him change. She'd heard all of his wild exploits, and there was little she recognised of the person before her. She could not deny that she'd been in love with him once, and as he told her that he still felt this way after more than 15 years had passed, she felt oddly comforted. Although this was overshadowed with regret, it appeared that he'd never been able to truly move on. She wondered how significant it had been, breaking his heart all those years ago. If she stayed with him, she believed without question that he would not have been so reckless. Perhaps he would have been kinder, not looked for love in the wrong places and faced his emotions rather than stifled them with substances. The very last thing she'd intended to do was inflict suffering on another person. Crossing paths with him should never have been on the cards. It was a misstep, an aberration. She knew detaching herself from the very idea of romance was an entirely necessary evil. In doing so, everything had become so much simpler. She remembered a lie she'd told in a letter to Oleg months ago about a man she'd been involved with in the Congo. It was a white lie, one told simply to put an old man at ease. No one could understand her journey other than her. People found it impossible to grasp that she would abandon such an apparently integral part of her life. She knew that Zack never truly understood it and he likely projected his own insecurities onto her decision to end things. Seeking to take a nobler path did not negate the fact that she was still essentially human, and there existed no greater reminder of this than bidding farewell to two friends in one short morning. Before leaving the hospital, she found the prayer room, and the only way she knew to alleviate her anguish through meditation. The day was still young, and there was so much left to do. The only thing perhaps more curious than Sam's daily schedule was the accumulation of past events that had necessitated it. The daughter of Sanjay Tiwari, an Indian physician, and Judith Perkins, an English nurse, Samsara moved with her parents from Bangalore to London aged 11. Even in India, her upbringing had been mostly secular, with neither parent pressing the importance of a particular ideology, but they never ruled out the potential value to be gained in learning. In her early teens... She read the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Then she discovered the Tripitaka and fell deeply in love with Buddhism. Her favourite subject in school was science. When she learned about the so-called six degrees of separation, the small world problem experiments and later quantum theory, specifically with its relation to consciousness, she felt that while not all of science and spirituality could be reconciled, there were profound connections to be made. After qualifying as a behavioural psychologist in her early 20s, Sam gained her experience at a private practice while writing her first book. Penned under the ambiguous Dr. Tuari, with no personal information other than her credentials, the book was a groundbreaking exploration of clinical psychology and its links to mindfulness and ritualistic practices. It was, surprisingly, a huge commercial success and on the advice of a friend she chose to invest nearly all of the profits it generated. This transformed a substantial dividend into a staggering windfall, and she found herself vastly wealthy at a young age. Instead of resting on her laurels, she used her capital to establish several non-profit charity organisations. The money also bought her an inestimable amount of freedom. For the last 15 years, she lived the life of a nomadic philanthropist, and travelled to wherever her heart led her. Although she remained an active member of her organisations, she also left herself open to help any troubled soul she encountered along the way. The kind of assistance she offered ranged anywhere from friendship to financial assistance, and everything in between. For someone with no traditional employment to speak of, Sam became immeasurably busy. Even if she'd not taken the personal vow to live a life without intimacy. Her agenda was so tightly crammed as to never truly allow it. At a coffee house across the road from the hospital, she began to tackle what seemed an insurmountable backlog of correspondence. Rosalia, a girl she'd met at a train station in Boston, sought relationship advice via a messaging app. She gave bereavement counseling to a young man named Andre, whom she'd once chatted with in another hospital waiting room. Via email, she checked in on Ari, a recovering heroin addict she'd kept contact with for over five years. She could not give resolute answers to every lost soul she'd ever met, and nor could she save everyone. Sometimes, losing touch with those she aided was a result of them no longer needing her. Occasionally, they chose to reject her support in spite of its value, and in rare cases, they were beyond help entirely. Zach was one of the first people she'd assisted in a non-professional capacity. He'd not long moved to California to pursue a career in music after failing to achieve success back home. He was 24 and soon to be homeless. She arranged temporary accommodation for him and told him not to give up on his dream. A few years later, Oleg had been in the midst of a mental breakdown when their paths had crossed. She'd spotted him in a hotel bar in Glasgow, and simply asked if he was okay. He unloaded on her with little prompting. His working life was so stressful at the time that he'd developed an addiction to sleeping pills. Eventually, it was under her advisement that he'd taken an early retirement. She didn't try to force salvation on every stranger in her vicinity, and she never seemed pious. Perhaps it was this, coupled with her openness, that made people gravitate towards her. Whatever the reasons, she soon developed a workload to rival a modern-day messiah, a burden that required her endless diligence. In her flooded email inbox, she came across one from an unknown recipient. When she opened it, however, she recognised the sender immediately. Dear Snoopy, I am writing to you from the school computer. I never wrote an email before, and yours is the only address I have to write to. I just wanted to thank you again for what you've done in Barbados. Life has not been easy here. After we got away from those men trying to kill me I moved in with my sister and started school. My sister's boyfriend is a scary cop named Renzo who was strict with me at home. He was so scary that nobody come after me while I'll be with him. At first I thought he was horrible and I ran away because I was so scared of being alone with him and I was chased again by another of Patrice's hitmen. I hid on a boat and ended up halfway to Florida When I got home I thought Renzo was going to give me the beating of my life. He'd not do this at all though. It turned out he was sorry that he made me scared of him. He also said he's sorry for being tough on me at home. He said he only wanted me to work hard and do well at school and that this was how his father was with him. Ever since then he's been much kinder and things have been better. Sometimes I miss being able to do whatever I want but it's very nice to have a soft bed to sleep in and food every day. I also made some friends at school and not all of the lessons are shit. Ha ha, the school computer won't let me write shit. Anyway, I want you to know that I am fine and I hope to get to see you one day. If you are ever in Barbados again, your coolest friend, Gabe. She chuckled to herself and wrote a quick reply. She told the boy that she was glad to hear from him and to know that he was safe and that she'd be delighted to pay him a visit if his sister gave her permission. Of the people she kept regular correspondence with and offered support, not all of them referred to her as a friend. Many seemed to recognise their relationship with her as a professional one. Despite it not adhering to any official protocol, it was touching to see that Gabe had joined the roster of people who saw their arrangement a little differently. Certain individuals even shed the label of someone in need entirely when their situations had improved. The semantics of friends and unofficial clients aside, her ever-growing list was difficult to keep track of. In recent years, she tried to implement a rigid level of organisation to the chaos. One simple method was to group people by their location, provided they did not share her nomadic tendencies. When she found herself in some obscure part of the world for whatever reason, she'd refer to these notes to see who she could visit nearby. There were half a dozen people in the Florida folder. Of these names, she observed, at least a few might benefit from a face-to-face encounter. A college professor with a gambling problem, called Steve, was one such person, as well as a woman named Cecilia with a sick daughter. She'd picked up her phone to call Steve when it started to ring. Jordana, she answered, to what do I owe this pleasure? As an expert in the human psyche, sometimes the motives of a person's behaviour that seemed obvious to her were a total mystery to them. It had been a year since Jordana had lost her father. The two had shared a turbulent relationship before his passing, and Sam felt that these conditions had prompted the young woman to make some extremely dubious life decisions. Chief of which was dating a married man not much younger than her father had been at his untimely passing. Sam had made several efforts to highlight this fact to her journalist friend, and despite Jordana's responsiveness to much of the advice she was offered, this particular reflection seemed to fall on deaf ears. Perhaps if these observations had been made in a therapist's office, for the woman was entirely oblivious to Sam's credentials, she might have been more receptive, but simply passed down from one friend to another, the issue remained mostly overlooked. An inescapable consideration at present was Jordana's drinking, a habit that seemed to be becoming more destructive by the day. She could tell her friend was currently alone in a bar and would be continuing her consumption as the day progressed. You're fully aware that this particular method is just a mask, right? Sam impressed on the woman, abandoning all subtlety. Jordana admitted she was aware, as she often did. Cue the defensive justifications, Sam thought. The defence never came, however, and Sam discerned an unexpected shakiness in her friend's voice. "'Oh, coach,' Jordana said. A peculiar nickname Sam had grown used to. "'I just don't know how I got here.' Sam's eyebrows raised in recognition. "'How you got where?' she gently probed. This was a turning point, a clear acceptance of her situation. When they concluded their conversation... Sam felt a rush of relief for her friend. For the first time in months, realisation was dawning on Jordana. Such epiphanies were often not so emphatic, although she'd still not connected her behaviour to the underlying grief. It seemed as though Jordana had reached a milestone. Her next conversation was with Steve, the gambling professor. Thrilled to hear she was in town, he arranged to meet with her. Steve had relapsed, she found out later that day. As they drank coffee in his university campus, he informed her of what his recent fall from grace had cost him. His wife and teenage daughter had moved out a week ago, and he'd run up a five figure debt with an online poker company. Sam ripped a page from her notebook and copied information from her phone. I'm going to put you in touch with the rehabilitation centre, she said to him. I just don't know if that'll solve everything, he said watching her write. Steve, I'm going to ask this once. For the sake of your family, as well as yourself, are you willing to change? Yes, Steve's eyes were watery. I can't imagine life without them. And you'll commit to go? Steve nodded, then winced. It's the money though, Sam, he sighed. If you'll accept the help and surrender yourself to the programme, I will sort out the rest. Steve's eyes widened. What? I'll pay off the debt. Sam, I appreciate it. I just don't know when I'll be able to pay you back. Don't worry about that. It isn't a loan. This was indeed a form of help no therapist would ever offer. Not a loan? Then what is it? It's my half of the commitment. I'll clear the debt as long as you do as I've asked. Steve started to cry. Why? Why, he stuttered. Why are you doing this? Because I know you have it in you to change your situation. He wiped his face. I don't deserve this. She handed him the paper. Do we have an agreement, she said, holding on to it. Yes. She released the page. Then shake my hand. The professor obliged. I want you to call your wife. Tell her the debt has been sorted and that you're seeking help. The ball is in your court now. Sam, I won't let you down. Sam smiled, hoping he was right. She took the details of the poker site from him and made the payment with as much hesitation as someone booking theatre tickets. Although the sum was large, she saw it as an investment in her friend. Significant handouts like these were carefully judged affairs, such interventions made on a case by case basis. Sam informed her friend that it was a one off. Like most of the people she aided, she saw past Steve's floor to find a regretful man in need of a guiding hand. Next time, you're on your own, she said. He nodded, lowering his head. The words had seemed to settle with him in the manner they were intended. He hugged her before she left. As Sam finally rested her head on the coarse motel pillow that evening, she briefly considered her mood. It was favourable that her recent interactions had occurred in the order they had, While her final meetings could certainly not offset the sadness of the first two, she considered her unique position. Not all good Samaritans are able to witness the positive effects of their actions, and scarcely with such immediacy. She knew not to bask in such feelings of gratification, but at the least, they aided her sleep. If you'd like to learn more about JW Voice, the author of this story, pop along to the show notes where you'll find a link to him right there. And as for Bear Book's podcast, we're on all your favourite social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. See you on the next episode.